Well, the Christian life can be lived in valleys and on mountaintops, but it's mostly walked out in the fat, flat plains. And most of our days are spent in the mundane, the ordinary, the routine. Such monotony can produce a sense of complacency in our lives towards Christ. He can become yet another thing to do on our busy to-do list rather than the delight of our existence and the joy of our hearts. So writes author Trillia Newbell in an article entitled The Breathtaking Love That We Forget. She goes on, You and I have a proneness to forget the greatest love in the world. It's a love we cannot fully comprehend and imagine, yet we forget that God loves us, pursues us, and we are his. As Robert Robertson wrote in his great hymn, Come Thou Fount, we are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. And the danger in our forgetfulness is that we can begin to think that our life is primarily about us. We can begin to think that we've earned God's favor through our goodness rather than by his grace. Or we can eventually forget the Lord altogether and live as if there isn't one who is sustaining us. We can begin to live self-sufficiently. So, she writes, each day, each hour is a worthy fight to remember our greatest love in the world. And one way for you and me to fight our temptation to wander toward lesser things is to remember the love and pursuit of God for us. Where might you be today in your belief that God loves you and is pursuing you with his love? It is tempting to become complacent about God when our days are ordinary and routine. We run to God when there's trouble. We may thank God on days of immense blessing, but most of life is ordinary, which can lead to complacency towards God. And I wonder, has any complacency towards God settled in your heart in any way? Maybe even now you're saying, it's not that big of a deal. I'm good where I'm at, and I don't have time to do more religion. And I get that. Sometimes the Christian life can seem like this big burden of so many things that we have to do or fit into our already busy lives. But when we begin to think like that, we need to refocus on our relationship with God. And out of that relationship, these other things can flow. Just as married couples sometimes need to step back and remember their first love that they had for each other, we need to step back and remember God and what he did for us when we first came to him. And one way to do this is to recapture a vision of God's acts on our behalf. And our journey through Colossians leads us there today. And if you're a Christian, you're going to be reminded today of some of God's loving acts for you. And I pray that we will see more clearly the breathtaking love of God, which can inspire us and move us to a renewed passion for God and for life. And if you're not a Christian, I pray that you will see today the potential of receiving this great love of God into your life.
So if you have a Bible, please find Colossians chapter 1. It's on page 834 in the Bibles in front of you or on your devices. And I'll be reading verses 9 to 14. Our focus text today is verses 12 to 14, but I'm going to start in verse 9 again for context. So verse 9 of Colossians 1, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, For all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So last week we saw Paul share this specific prayer request that he was lifting up to the Lord on behalf of the Colossians. And it was found in verse 9. We ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we learned that the knowledge of God's will in this context is not really the knowledge for individual uh, direction in our lives, but more the knowledge of God's big plan and what he is doing in the world through Jesus. But we also learned that Paul didn't pray that just so they would gain in knowledge. He prayed so that they would be able to live a life pleasing to God. And we saw four aspects of such a life. Bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with power according to his glorious might, and then depending on this strength to endure difficult situations and bear bear patiently with difficult people. And so we ended in verse 11. But in verses 12 to 14, Paul switches focus, and he's no longer talking about prayer. He talks about God's actions on behalf of Christians. And in some ways, he's preparing the reader for the colossal Christ hymn that is found in verses 15 to 20, which we'll start next week. And in the Christ hymn, Christ is put forward as preeminent, supreme overall. But in verses 12 to 14, Paul focuses more on what God has done for us. And I would summarize these verses like this. Very simply, God delivered us from darkness so that we can live in the light. God delivered us from darkness so we can live in the light. And if you're a Christian, do you remember that God has delivered you out of darkness And I think we need to think a little bit or remember a little bit about darkness and what we've been saved from. Now, if you ask people today, do you think you live in darkness? Most people in the world would say no. They might give you a weird look. Convinced modern secular people would argue they are the most enlightened people in all of history. They have escaped the darkness or the old ways of thinking. They have escaped the shackles of a religion. They have joined the brave new world of self-ruling individuals who redefine right and wrong for what they think is better. And if they knew you were a Christian or you were religious, they'd think you're living in darkness and you need to come into their light. 
Yet the Bible paints a completely different picture. Consider Jesus' teaching. He talked about the devil. He talked about darkness. And John Mark Comer in his book, Live No Lies, writes three times Jesus called the devil the prince of this world. And the word for prince was a political word in Jesus' day used for the highest ranking Roman official in a city or a region. And Jesus was saying that this creature is the most powerful and influential creature in the world. And during Jesus' temptation, the devil claimed that all the kingdoms of the world were his to give away. And Jesus did not disagree. Now, the devil was created by God as an angel. The devil chose to rebel against God's rule, to seize the world's throne for himself, and to enlist as many as possible in rebellion against God. So many angels followed him in this rebellion. And then humans joined in the rebellion at the Garden of Eden. And we've been doing that ever since. Comer writes, For thousands of years the devil has held sway as the prince of this world, leading vast swaths of human and non-human creatures in their ongoing quest to seize autonomy from God and redefine good and evil as they saw fit. Comer summarizes Jesus' teaching on the devil with three simple points. One, the devil is a real immaterial, intelligent being. Two, his end goal is to spread ruin in our souls and society. And three, his primary means is lies or deception. So if the devil is the prince of this world, you could call his realm darkness. And when Jesus was arrested, he referred to this. In Luke 22, verses 52 and 53, Jesus says, have you come out against me as a robber, as if I was a robber, with swords and clubs. When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but, and this is the important one, Luke twenty-two fifty-three. this is your hour and the power of darkness. Or the NIV says, when darkness reigns. So darkness is the realm where the devil rules as prince of this world. And the devil wages war against us with lies and deception, especially about God. God is not good. God doesn't want the best for you. God is trying to limit you. You can be God. Just throw off that old idea and do what you want with your life. But the good news is Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. As 1 John 3, 8 says, he came to set humanity free. He did this by resisting the devil's temptations at the start of his ministry. He also overcame the works of the devil and destroyed them by teaching truth. One way to defeat lies. By casting out demons in his ministry and ultimately by defeating the devil through his death, resurrection, and exaltation. And later in Colossians, in chapter 2, verse 15, we see the phrase or the sentence, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. So to appreciate the depth of love that God has already shown to us, we need to remember the darkness from which we were saved. 
We used to live under the power of the devil, in the realm of the devil, and there was nothing that we could do to escape from this kingdom. There was no price that we could afford to pay. There was no secret escape route that we could figure out and discover on our own. We were basically captives and slaves to darkness. And those, apart from Christ, are blind to this. Paul also says in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 to 4, he writes, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the devil's at work in the lives of unbelievers to keep them blind, blinded from the gospel. And if you're not a Christian, I pray that the Spirit is opening your eyes right now to this reality. So with darkness in mind and the prince of the world in mind, we can now ask the question, what did God do to deliver us from darkness? Number one, he qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That's directly from verse 12 of Colossians 1. And an inheritance is something passed along to someone's heir. And inheritance usually involves heritage. So if you are a child of a king, you could inherit the kingdom when the king dies. If you are a child of a very wealthy person, you could inherit their wealth, or possibly when they die. And in biblical history, the Israelites inherited God's initial promises to Abraham. And if you were a Jew and descended from Abraham, you could claim a share in this inheritance. But if you weren't a Jew, you didn't have any real claim. And part of the good news of the New Testament announces that God has decided to include non-Jews in the inheritance. And notice in verse 12 that the inheritance is not the promised land or Israel, it is the inheritance of the saints in light. So these are the set-apart ones who live in the light of God. They live under God's reign. That means they no longer live under the devil's reign. And remember we just said we couldn't do anything to get ourselves out from darkness. So what did God do? Verse 12 he qualified us. He made us fit. He did something so that we could leave darkness and join these saints in the light. Well, what did God do? Well, he did a lot of things, and Paul doesn't explain really what he's thinking here, but one of the major things that God did to qualify us was he clothed us with the righteousness of Christ. You see, to live as a saint, a set-apart, holy one, in the light, we needed to live perfectly sinless lives. Anyone here have that on their resume? Of course not. The only person who lived a perfectly sinless life was Jesus himself, and God was willing to clothe or transfer Jesus' righteousness onto us meaning we are now qualified to share in the inheritance. And it's not because of our good works. It's because of Christ's 
righteousness. And if you want to read more about that, Romans 5, 12 to 21 is a major passage that talks all about this. But God the Father provided what we needed to qualify for his inheritance of the saints in light. That's number one. Number two, what else did God do? He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now that's a direct quote from verse 13 of Colossians 1. So here we see the domain or authority of darkness. See that? He delivered us from the domain of darkness. The authority of darkness. Apart from Christ, people live under the authority of darkness. And we cannot free ourselves from it. We need a deliverer. And this is the same language that is used when talking about the deliverance of the Israelites from slavery to Egypt in the Old Testament. Remember, the Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians, under the Egyptians, and they could not deliver themselves. So God raises up Moses, and through Moses and his brother Aaron, God performs the ten signs, the ten plagues that strike Egypt and her gods, and eventually Egypt is forced to release the Israelites from slavery, and they begin their journey to the promised land. Well, here, God delivered us from the domain of darkness. So he rescued us. It's like he came into our prison cell or cell block with the key to unlock our cell and to let us out. But he didn't just let us out so that we could go back to living in the domain of darkness just outside of that particular cell. He delivered us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He transferred us, the verse says. So he moved us from darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. We have been relocated to this new kingdom under the reign of Jesus. And this is full-on rescue. Again, we couldn't escape by ourselves. And people who have come to Christ later in life might have a greater picture of what life was like under the domain of darkness before they came to Christ. I think of someone like John Newton, who I'm trying to read through his works. He was the captain of the slave ship, the guy who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, and they preserved a lot of his letters and writings, and he wrote a lot of letters to his wife while he was at sea. And in one of his letters to his wife, he remembers the hardness of his mind towards God before conversion. He writes, My own experience convinces me that nothing short of a divine power can soften a mind which after having stifled or put down repeated checks of its conscience and has renounced revelation is now hardened like steel against God. He writes, I know the gall and bitterness, the effects, and the awful danger of that state. Newton resisted becoming a Christian for many years, and he only turned to Christ out of desperation while he was on a ship that was about to sink or was threatened with sinking. Their survival was in doubt. God, him, God brought him near ruin, and then Newton turned. And Newton realized that this near ruin 
needed to happen in his life to save him from ultimate ruin. In another letter to his wife, he writes, If I had not been ruined, I would have been ruined indeed. So people who come to Christ later in life might have a a little clearer picture of what life was like under darkness compared to light. But what if we came to Christ early in life? What if we came to Christ as kids and we can't even remember really life under darkness? I think it's kind of like children of immigrants. Say an immigrant family decides, you know, the parents decide we, things are not good here. And if we have kids, it's not going to be good. We need to immigrate to another place to give our children a better life. And then the children are born and they know nothing but the better life. They don't know what life was like back there. And the only way they they learn a little bit about it is by listening to their parents and others who have experienced those hardships. So we need to listen to the testimonies of others who remember life under the domain of darkness. But I also wonder if we get a glimpse of the extent of this rescue because we live near darkness all the time. We see the effects of darkness on other people's lives and we see it still in our own lives where darkness maybe lingers, where our sinfulness is buried and then bubbles up when some stress comes along and exposes it. So the more that we understand the depth of our sin, the darkness from which we are saved, the more we grasp the great deliverance that God has provided for us. So what did God do to move us from darkness to light? One, he qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Two, he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And number three, through his son, he gives us redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And redemption is slave market language. And everyone in the ancient world knew about slave markets. Slave sellers would line up their products, people, and buyers would come along and choose those that they wanted for whatever need they had in their household or their farm or their business. And imagine you lived during that time and one of your family members went missing. And then you hear they're being auctioned off at the slave market. What are you going to do? You are going to rush down there and you are going to try to buy your family member their freedom. You don't want to buy them so that they can be your slave. You want to buy their freedom. That is redemption. Redeeming a slave to give them freedom. And apart from Christ, we are slaves to sin. We also live under a form of slavery to the devil. And the only price to redeem us is the blood of a pure sacrifice. Christ himself. And that's part of what the cross was about. The sinless man sacrificed himself on our behalf. And when we trust Christ, it's like God goes to the slave market and redeems us, buys us back, takes us away from that. Jesus' blood also paid for the forgiveness of our sins. And notice in verses 12 to 14, all of these are past tense. We have already been qualified, delivered, transferred, redeemed, forgiven. These are just some of God's great actions of love for us. 
And these are reasons to be thankful, no matter what else is going on in our lives. And so, what can we do with this? How do we live in the light if God has rescued us out of darkness so we can live in the light? Number one, we need to live with joy and gratitude. And, and in Colossians, he talks about that at the end of verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. And then he goes on to talk about all these things the Father has done for us. And whether God saved you early in life or later in life, this is a great act of God. And we can live with thanksgiving every day about that. And even if you have a lousy day or a lousy week or it's a lousy time in your life, these things are still true. So when you can't think of anything to be thankful for or anything good that's come with your day, at least you have these things which are massive when we comprehend them. And they can serve to fuel our joy and thanksgiving in everyday life. So that's one. But number two, we need to cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And this comes from Romans 13, 12, which is also written by Paul, same author of Colossians. And he writes this, The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Interesting. If we've been rescued from the domain of darkness, how can we still have works of darkness in our lives? Well, we can be rescued from the domain or the authority of darkness, but that doesn't mean Satan gives up on us. He still invites us to rebel. Though he doesn't have authority over us, he tempts us. He, he casts doubt about God, and we can still choose to live as if we're still under that kingdom. So we need to cast off the works of darkness as they become illuminated for us. And I think one of the best illustrations of this comes in an iceberg. You know an iceberg? Well, you might not personally know an iceberg, but if you see an iceberg, you know that only 10% of the iceberg is above water. 90% is below water. And our sin and the darkness in our lives is, is like that 10%. It's, it's the whole thing, but we see the 10% above water. And, and just as the sun shines on the iceberg at the top and melts the ice at the top, more comes up from beneath. And that's kind of what the Christian life is all about. We, we deal with the sin that we can see above the water line as Jesus' light shines on it. And then more comes up from beneath. And, and the Christian life is this journey of melting the iceberg of darkness and sin in our lives. It's a lifelong journey. And it's only complete when we die or Jesus returns. But then when that light of Jesus shines on that thing in our life, we need to cast off that work of darkness, realizing we're not under that authority anymore. We don't have to keep doing that. And we ask for the Spirit's empowering to leave behind the sin that once enslaved us. So friends, you are now qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved son. So darkness and the devil have no authority over you. 
You have come under God's protection. You have brothers and sisters who can help you and stand with you. You've been released from slavery to sin so you can live free from its ruthless mastery. You have been forgiven of your sins so you can move forward knowing that the Lord will declare you not guilty forever. And this is really the gospel that we need to live by. Maybe today, God shone on the darkness of complacency in your heart. I need to say, that, that is enough. Yeah, that's true. I got to re-engage. I, I have to restart my time with God, my quiet time, my time in prayer, my time with my small group, my time with other Christians. Or, or maybe you're not a Christian. And the invitation today is, will you receive this gospel by faith. And Comer writes this, which I think is a good point because a lot of times we think of faith, well, that's for religious people and no one else lives by faith. Everyone lives by faith. He writes, we think of faith as something for religious people, but all of us live by faith. To have faith is simply to live as if it's true. It means to put your trust in something or someone and remain loyal to them. And that's the invitation to receive Christ. Is Christ true? Is Christ worthy of our loyalty? Has God done all these things for us? Yes. So will you trust him and live under his kingdom of hope and joy and light? And Lord God, as we come to you right now, we want to thank you for the incredible acts that you have done to rescue us from darkness and bring us into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of your beloved sons, where we get to join the saints in the light, redeemed from slavery, forgiven of our sin, empowered to live in the light. The devil's still calling, Lord, still tempting, still inviting us to join in that rebellion and if we need to confess that, Lord, pray for that confession now to go up to you. And for those who don't know you, Lord, maybe today you've opened their eyes. The devil's blinding work has been stopped. Empower them to come to you and put their trust on you. And empower all of us to cast off the works of darkness that you reveal and put on the armor of light. We pray this in your name. Amen.